Hello, this is Pastor John Willingham of Doylestown Presbyterian Church. It's clear these days it's tough to make time. Schedules quickly become busy and calendars suddenly become full. To that end, DPC is excited to now offer this podcast channel, which will allow you to hear a recording of Sunday's sermon from that day's preacher. Whether you listen while taking an evening stroll, driving to and from the grocery store, or anytime you get a free couple of minutes, we hope it can allow for reflection and spiritual growth during your week. We also invite you to visit www.dtownpc.org to learn more about our church, our various ministries, and online giving opportunities. Thank you for tuning in. Last month, we had 19 young people become part of this church as they profess their faith in Jesus Christ. Whenever a confirmation class takes that step, it is a moment of great joy for us as a body of believers to see how this next generation is claiming the faith that has been handed down to them and making it their own. And as part of that moment, there are a series of questions that are posed to that group. And for those of you who joined this church long before that moment, those of you who are considering that yet, I want to share with you the questions that we ask of everyone who becomes a part of this body of believers, and I'll even give you the answers. First are three questions that are posed about one's own faith. Trusting in the gracious mercy of God, do you turn from the ways of sin and renounce evil and its power in the world? And the answer is, I do. Who is your Lord and Savior? Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. Will you be Christ's faithful disciple, obeying his word and showing his love? I will, with God's help. It's after that moment of personal affirmation that there's one final question that is posed. Will you be a faithful member of this congregation, sharing in its worship and ministry through your prayers and gifts, your study and service, and so fulfill your calling to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? And again, the answer is, I will, with God's help. Now, you might notice that in those questions, we don't ask a new member, have you got this faith thing all figured out? Nor do we ask them, will you promise from this moment forward that you will be perfect in following the vows you have just uttered? As instead, we know those of us who are witnessing that time, those of us who previously have taken it, those who are participating in that moment itself, we know that we will not be 100% faithful in living out those vows, not one of us. And instead, we recognize that for all of us in this journey, we, we have some fraction of that 100% that we are able to live out. And thus we journey together as a body of faith, seeking strength and seeking to grow with God's help. The two biblical texts before us today 
demonstrate that that's not a new human trait. One of the things I love about the Bible is it doesn't give us only a sanitized version of those who lived before us. And instead, what we see in their life and witness are imperfect people seeking to follow a perfect Lord. And thus, when we read of those moments, it's an opportunity for us as well to hear and learn from their story, even as we might ask ourselves, if you will, what fraction of that 100% are we in that particular moment? Our Old Testament reading is a continuation of a narrative that we are following this summer from the book of Daniel And when we last were hearing those words, it focused on a day when three Jews in exile, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, had been brought back into the presence of King Nebuchadnezzar because they had refused to bow down to this golden statue that he had created. The king gave those men a second chance and told them that if they didn't follow according to now what was the law, that there was this fiery furnace that awaited. And in response, they said, we will not bow down to your gods or to this statue that you have made. Our passage begins at that moment. As we're told, the king is so infuriated that his face is contorted with rage. He orders the furnace heated up to seven times its usual level and takes three of his strongest guards and has them bind these three men and throw them inside the furnace. We're told that the heat is so intense that the guards die from it. But these three men fall down safely inside. Soon thereafter, Nebuchadnezzar somehow is able to look inside the furnace and he's mystified by what he sees. He says, did we not bind three men and throw them into the fire? Why is it now that I see four men unbound walking around with the fire not hurting them? And one of them has the appearance of a God. Well, quickly, Nebuchadnezzar shouts out, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, come here. And when they do, we're told that all the observers are mystified. As fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men, the hair of their heads were not singed, their tunics were not harmed, and not even the smell of fire came from them. I can't even say all those things after I've been at my backyard fire pit. (laughs) And yet in this moment, the king is appropriately dismayed and aware of what has happened as he says, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have rescued them because they placed their trust in him. And then by the end of the scene, we are told that Nebuchadnezzar has now promoted these three men, which might be the origin of that expression in our culture of a trial by fire. Now, as we have seen, 
already in this summer series, there are pieces about this narrative that mystify us. But who was that fourth man that the king saw? Was it an angel? Was it Daniel? Was it Jesus? What are we to make of all of the circumstances that are described here? Is this a literal depiction of what happened, or does it have a once-upon-a-time quality to it? Lots of questions. Few answers. Thus, I'd like to focus this morning in that scene on what we do know, namely the response of that king. For as we've already seen this summer, Nebuchadnezzar has a short fuse and quickly overreacts. And so earlier there was that moment when he'd had this terrible dream that no one could interpret for him. He brought together all the officials for whom that was their job to interpret dreams. And when they couldn't answer it, he said that unless they could both tell him what the dream was and offer an explanation, they would all be put to death. And when Daniel comes and is able to provide him with both of those pieces, Nebuchadnezzar is so thrilled, he says, truly your God is the God of gods. He did not become a believer in that moment. For in the very next breath, we are told of this statue that he has built and a decree that all bow down to it. Surely, though, after this moment, after seeing what has happened to these three men, Nebuchadnezzar knows where he will place his faith loyalties. And there are hints of it. When he calls out those three men from the furnace, he, were, he speaks of the God of the Most High, which suggests that maybe He's beginning to piece together something about this God those Jews have followed. Towards the end of the scene, too, he says to them, there's really no other God who can do what your God did. And if that's all that we have, we would think that surely now there is a new believer who sat on the throne of ancient Babylon. And yet the full reaction from that king makes clear that this is more complicated and a more mixed kind of understanding by Nebuchadnezzar. For after accurately recognizing how the men survived the fire and before he now promotes them, he says this, any person, nation, or language that utters blasphemy against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses burn in ruins. Those are exactly the words he used when his dream interpreters couldn't give him the answer he wanted. And yet in this moment, it mystifies me. Here's one who has come to understand much about the nature of God, and truly he believes that if anyone says something bad about God, they deserve to be destroyed? At best, we could say that Nebuchadnezzar is halfway there. Our New Testament reading tells of a moment when 
two of Jesus' closest followers also miss the mark. He comes towards the very end of what's known as the travel narrative. As we're told in this scene that Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem and it will be the place of destiny for him. It will be in Jerusalem that he is arrested and put to death. And so prior to this particular scene, Jesus has been with these 12 men for three years. He has taught them wondrous things. They have seen amazing displays of power. There have been moments when they have gotten it at first hearing and times when they clearly didn't understand and he had to follow up with further clarification. And now those disciples too are about to enter that week we call holy. So it is on this day that Jesus sends some of his helpers ahead to a Samaritan village to prepare the way. And we're told that that advance team is rejected by the Samaritans. Now, Jews and Samaritans had a lot of things in common in terms of their beliefs, but the differences were enough that there was this fierce rival animosity even between the two. Some scholars think that that all began at the end of Jewish exile when the Jews have returned to Jerusalem and they're trying to build the temple and we're told that Samaritans resisted. And if that, in fact, was the root of all of this, then it means that this distrust, this rivalry, this hatred dated back to the time of Daniel. So on this day, we're told that the Samaritans reject these servants of Jesus who've tried to pass through the village. And we're not told exactly why. But when James and John... Disciples who Jesus will nickname sons of thunder. When they hear of this report, they say, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and wipe out these people? Can you imagine it? After three years of traveling with him, after learning all kinds of new things about this God of love, Two ticked-off disciples now want to wipe out an entire village because they rejected the advance team. Jesus' words aren't recorded for us, but all we are told is that he rebuked them, and they went on to another village. No disciple follows 100% of the time. All of us remain works in progress. To be sure, there are times when our actions we can trust, in fact, are what God intends. When we offer grace to someone who doesn't deserve it. When we give in a sacrificial way with no thought of thanks or reward. When we show compassion to one who is hurting, when we give of our talents to bless the church's witness, when we speak up for the one who doesn't have voice at the table in those moments and others, we can be sure that we are carrying out God's will. And yet for all of us, there are moments when we don't do that. Times when we withhold grace. 
times when we say we're too busy, times when we don't do what we can, times when we are silent in allowing an injustice to occur. All of us have times when we fall short. At best, those two disciples where Jesus were three-quarters of the way there. For us, it can be an open question. One day, years ago, Lori and I were sitting in a speech therapist's office. We were there with one of our children, and the appointments were fixed in such a way that every time we were there, there was this woman who came who had the very next appointment with her daughter and was waiting there while we were waiting for our child to be finished. And, and we would strike up conversations with her. We never really learned her name. But there was this stretch of a couple weeks when she wasn't there. And when she got back, she said something to us asking if our child had gotten the tubes put in, which we were anticipating. And then Lori asked her if that had happened for her daughter as well. And the woman said, no, you won't believe what had happened. Two weeks ago, she said, my son died in an accident. Well, in that mo mo moment, Lori immediately turned to her and offered great compassion, whereas I continued to do what I was already working on. And what was so urgent that for me, I was not able to respond to that clear word of grief that I heard. I was, of all things, trying to finish a bulletin for an upcoming worship service, and I had to finish it then because after we left that doctor's office, I was going to play golf. On that day, my timeline and that woman's clear need did not meet. What fraction of a Christian was I in that waiting room? I would say at best, it was zero over 100. All of us have times when we fall short of God's intention. All of us have mistakes that we make and acts of omission. And while there are many ways that we can address that human reality, it seems to me at least part of it is this eager spirit to continue to grow in modeling what God intends. George Carlin is a comedian and writer who is perhaps best known for a bit he had that focused on seven words that couldn't be aired on public airways. I will not be quoting that monologue here, <clears throat> but instead want to share with you another piece that is attributed to him, 
that shows really a different side. On the face of it, it really talks about how we age. But I'd like to offer it to you this morning as an analogy for the Christian journey. Here's what he said. Do you realize that the only time in our life when we like to get old is when we're kids? If you're less than 10 years old, you're so excited about aging that you think in fractions. How old are you? I'm four and a half. You're never 36 and a half, he said. You're four and a half. You're four and a half going on five. You get into your teens. Now they can't hold you back. You jump to the next number. How old are you? I'm going to be 16. You could be only 12, Carlin said, but you're going to be 16. And then the greatest day of your life happens. You become 21. Even the words sound like a ceremony. You become 21. But then, he continues, you turn 30. What happened there, he said. Makes you sound like bad milk. He turned. We had to throw him out. What changed? You become 21. You turn 30. Then you're pushing 40. You become 21. You turn 30. You're pushing 40. You reach 50. And your dreams are gone. Then, he says, you make it to 60. <laughs> you didn't think you'd make it, did you? So you become 21, you turn 30, you're pushing 40, you reach 50, you make it to 70, and then you build up so much speed you hit 70. After that, it's a day-to-day -day thing. After that, you hit Wednesday. You get into your 80s and you hit lunch. And it doesn't end there. Into the 90s, you start going backwards. I was just 92, you might say. And then a strange thing happens. If you make it over 100, he says, you become a little kid again. I'm a hundred and a half. <laughs> May the same be said for us. No matter how long we have been on this journey, no matter how much we have learned or done, that we have never fully arrived. For you and I will not ever reach the point where we have it all figured out or where we live 100% of the time in the way that our Savior wants us to do. Which is why, instead of lamenting that fact, instead of giving up, we accept that we will always be fractional Christians 
individuals who continue to learn and grow and to serve, ever eager for what might come next with God's help. Let us pray. We give thanks, O God, for the ways that you created us and for those moments when we are able to fully embody the faith that we have professed. We confess that which you already know, namely that even in those moments when we fully carry out your will, we do not stay there, for we remain human. And so we ask that you will give us grace, that you will give us eyes of candor, and that you will give us the resolve needed to keep growing. That incrementally and in our best moments, we might yet demonstrate all that you intend. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us on your journey of faith. Don't forget to check out www.dtownpc.org to explore all the ways DPC strives to be a bridge for Christ and a beacon of his love.